they killed it, my brother. And he was my only brother. I loved it, the dude. Radio Drome. Welcome to the 400th episode of Radio Drome. How did you people let us get this far? It's your fault, but anyway. So, I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is the one, the only... Yeah, you know what? Cecil's here. But you... Uh... Exactly. Peter is here from Canada. I'm trying to figure out how many of these 400 I've been on. It's, it's got to be... Is it about 150 at this point? Almost 200? 170 maybe, somewhere around it's quite there. a few. Yeah, Cecil's, a I, I think, Cecil's got to be in like the 300 range. Yeah, Cecil, I don't know. Cecil joined in 150, so so mm-hmm. he, he missed some, so Cecil's over 200 at least. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It's It feels like a thousand. And Fred has been on quite a few with us as well. Fred has, and he is here tonight. That's right, honey, and we better hurry up. I get paid by the hour. <laughs> <laughs> and you're worth every shilling better believe it darling <laughs> every shekel every rupee every it's been 400 of these i've done this promo probably 350 times but go to adamandeve.com use the promo code drone 50 percent off of a single item three free dvds a free sex swing and free u.s shipping just use the promo code drone at adamandeve.com we're all film fans you're all i film don't fans. watch movies <laughs> Shut up, you. We're all film fans. And so, I don't even like movies. <laughs> what's a movie? <laughs> what's a... Whatever. If you think of the Simpsons line, it's, what's a truck? Yeah, well... <laughs> movies about making movies, selling movies, movies. Movie fans. Movies about movies. Movie so, films. Fred, as the more infrequent guest, what would be one of your favorite movies about movies well i guess i'll just start right off the bat with probably one of my most favoritest of all the timest uh movies that actually has been a bit of an inspiration to me even when i get down i like to go back to this movie to look to kind of inspiration it's a movie called the wizard of speed and time it's a great Uh, film too it's 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 i can't if you've never seen this one this is one you got to track down it's real easy to track down by the way it's uh on youtube there hmm. is two there's two versions you can see one's really low quality i recommend the higher quality i think it's the one from only like two years ago posted but you can watch the whole movie uh i was blessed i got to see this film in florida when it was actually playing the theater circuit uh, many a moon ago and it was actually the two-hour cut of the film. Basically, the only difference between the hour and a half and two hour was there was way more animation in it. And for those that don't know, Mike Jutlove, who made the film, is a stop motion animator. Uh, that's primarily what his call to fame was. And this film actually chronicles, he had made a short film called The Wizard of Speed and Time. And he made it for Disney Studios back in the day, back in the uh, late 70s. Wasn't it for Wonderful World of Disney? The Wonderful the World show? of Disney. Yep. Yeah, he he had actually done a couple of things for them. 
his experiences were not good because they were all union and he was non-union. He had to constantly use his own locations, his own people. He made a studio out of his own garage, which by the way, you'll see in the movie. He, he would have to pay for everything up front and they would pay him back once the work was done. It was a ridiculously difficult thing for him to do. And in the end, he ended up having next to nothing to show for it. So he made this movie called The Wizard of Speed and Time, which named after the short film, which was sort of about his experiences working for Disney. But of course, they couldn't call them Disney. They call them Hollywood Studios in the film. But all those lines, all those lines of frustration, all those moments of frustration in the movie, those are things that really happen to Mike. There's a famous gag in it where he goes to the unions. He gives in. He's like, well, I guess I got to join the union because I can't get jobs. And he goes to all these different departments and they're giving him this all this double speak. And he said that it, it was so frustrating that that's really what it was kind of like, just done for comedic effect in the movie, that he just couldn't do it. Because basically you already had to be a member to join pay this ridiculous sum and they actually told him this because he had written directed done cinematography did his own animation built sets they actually said he was going to have to start at the very bottom because he was working in violation of seniority that really happened to him like in the movie they said you're in violation of seniority you're gonna have to start over as a film loader they actually told him that. This is a guy that had already been writing, directing, acting, working for Walt TV. Disney Studios, been on TV. And he's like, no way, I'm not starting over. He was already out of college. You know, this was a grown man. <laughs> this is a great little film filled with inspiration. It's all about the creative spirit. It's all about what makes the makes us want to make movies. Why would we want to join in this insanity called movie making? And that's ultimately why I love the film. It, it, it just really touches that part of my heart that's about being creative. And when you realize it took this guy years to make this film because of all the animation that's in it. Uh, it's a live action film. I'm talking about stop motion animation. It just took him years and years. And real quick, the sad coda to this is that the guy that plays the villain in the movie actually ended up ripping him off in real life. Oh. Uh, he undersold him, uh, took Mike years to get the rights back to the movie he ended up spending his entire life in court over one movie and he said i, I got to interview him uh, when i was in college and he said if he could have done it over he wouldn't have gone to court over the movie he would have let it go and just made more movies because he said he wasted so much of his life trying to fight because you know he was just tired of being screwed over and so he fought for this one movie but it cost him the rest of the time he could have been making movies. Not a not a happy end of the story because unfortunately we ended up getting nothing more from Mike really. I and I think Wizard of Speed and Time is a fantastic film and I highly highly recommend it. Fred pretty much covered it. It's uh, it's a really good movie and it's it, it's just a tragedy that uh, the guy got screwed over so hard because you can see how much passion and everything that was creativity that was put into the film. It almost oozes into the film itself, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's a shame because of the simple fact that because of all of this nonsense, we didn't get more of that. Like, he had so much more he could have done, but instead he got stuck in this legal loophole and was just in court for years and years instead of continuing to make movies. It's it's really a, a tragedy. 
Yeah, and in fact, there's a quote from the movie I always loved. Uh, I wrote it down for this, but I think it encapsulates not just his love of movies, but I think what touches all of us. And he has this line where he's feeling frustrated, and he says, If we could live on hopes and wishes and make movies with the speed of thought, all the films that could have been and all the dreams that I could spin. That mm-hmm kind of encapsulates that desire because you know films just start with an idea they this 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 vaporous thing in your head and you've got to take it from your head and get it onto film and then get it in front of people and that's way harder than i think anybody realizes mm-hmm. boogie nights boogie nights was on my list too because yeah <laughs> it's on my list particularly because I'm, I'm i'm thinking about it a lot with the the passing of burt reynolds obviously but thinking back to it, the, the amount of times I've seen it, the extent that I enjoy it too, which is a lot, like I consider it to be one of my favorite movies, some amazing performances in that one. Probably my favorite Burt Reynolds performance, honestly. He's amazing as Jack Horner, like believable to the point where it almost seems like he's just being himself. Like it seems like that's really Burt Reynolds. Mark Wahlberg, standout performance, probably Paul Thomas Anderson's best movie. Uh, it's just one that I constantly revisit. I love the 70s aesthetic of it. Even when it moves into the 80s, that feels really believable too with videotape and everything. Obviously, Boogie Nights is more more of a niche subculture with filmmaking. It's about making porn, but it still does it in, in a very lifelike sort of way, but it also like glamorizes it at the same time. It really draws you into the timeline and everybody just delivers this amazing Amazingly memorable performance in the film. So I'm, I'm going to go with, there, there was a couple here that I put to start with on my list. I was going to either talk about, I almost started with Ed Wood, but I think, I think I like Boogie Nights just a, a little bit more. Ed Wood's going to be my pick down the line, by the way. There you go. Oh, well, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, hey, there's always cannibal. I was going to say, I was going to say, well, he originally I was going to say Ed Wood, but then I picked Boogie Nights because of the passing of Burt Reynolds. And then uh, I was like, OK, well, he took Boogie Nights, so I'll go back to Ed Wood. So I, I for those listening at home, I actually wasn't even I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> it's I had not a prior, about films. I had a prior engagement, but uh, I was not. Uh, it got canceled due to inclement weather. So I ended up being here. So I am not 100 uh, percent prepared like I normally would be. That's so uh, that's fine. We're, we're totally used to covering for you. Oh, you shut up. (laughs) Boogie Nights is, first and foremost, forget the filmmaking aspect, that's a good movie. Mm -hmm. It's a well-written movie, and it's a movie that I think comes from a sincere place. One of the biggest problems when you talk A-list studio films, they could be good movies, but do they come from a sincere place? I I think Boogie Nights does. There's a lot of passion in that film, and it it seems like it's not a film that's interested in condemning its subjects, which I think goes a long way. You can watch one movie about the porn industry, and it can be very preachy, whereas this one chooses to just show us the people. I I think most would walk away from this movie going, wow, that's a life I wouldn't want just from seeing it naturally play out in front of you. You know, that that very uncomfortable moment where they come up with a new idea and they're in the back of a limo with <laughs> Roller Girl. You know oh. what I'm talking about? Which is funny because later on that became a thing in the porn did, yeah. too. Uh, what was that? Bus Stop Tales or something ba- like that? Bang, bang Bus. bus. Uh, 
<laughs> that was in Dolby, boys. That was uh, unison. I think Cecil no. and I watch a little bit too much porn. Uh, well, I that wasn't that wasn't store. me. That was you I and that was you that was me. I said it. Okay. I said bang bus and the horrible. So you two watch uh, <laughs> bang bus. Bang bang bus. Uh, you know, and funny thing is now you can almost see a very similar thing on YouTube. But the movie is just well acted, well written, well directed, and it gives you that what people would probably call candid look at the industry. But it does it not about the industry; it does it about the people. Yeah, and like if that's you look important. At, uh, like Jack Horner as a character, just in general, he really believes in it. A very endearing part of the film because he really believes in the magic of this industry. He really thinks that you know you got to get the people to stay in the seats after they're finished you got to get them with a with a good story and all this stuff you could you can feel his sincerity like he doesn't feel like like a sleazy guy he's just a guy that does want to make movies he just happens to be making adult films yeah he looks down at the the way the industry is changing yeah which is just about the porn and no story mm-hmm. there's also a weird element in boogie nights about filmmaking itself about the movie i i don't think you could do this today i don't think a studio would do this today new line wasn't owned yet by someone else they were an actual independent company i think at this point don't quote me Mm. on that paul thomas anderson had in his contract the film had to be i think it was two hours or under and he was delivering like a two and a half hour cut he's like i can't cut it anymore any more scenes missing will hurt the film and they're like we'll see about that and they watched it and they said you know what you're right we got (laughs) the other half hour out of it it'll hurt it so they said screw the contract we're taking the film as it is Mm -hmm. could you see a disney or a paramount do that today no absolutely not they're they're never willing to compromise on anything yeah they looked at this and went no this film needs to be two and a half hours it just it's one of those like i don't feel like every movie needs to like so many movies nowadays are like near three hours like superhero movies and action movies and all this stuff there are some movies that work great on an hour and a half time limit you know you you get in it's done you, you have you have a good time and you go home but then there's other movies like boogie nights that really do work on the near three hour mark because they use every hour every minute of that film is used to perfection to build character and i hate to this is one that comes up frequently but the last jedi the that entire segment where they went to the casino planet and back could have been completely removed from the film and it it would have have absolutely been cut would have changed nothing or at the very least drastically reduced Mm -hmm. so that was a case of where i have a feeling they were like uh you know we shot all this and we invested all this money and we have all these visual effects and we want to show it and in actuality you need to have an editor that's like i don't care this needs to come out Mm -hmm. because it's drag it's dragging an already overlong film down even more and and Uh, that subplot went nowhere too Literally, yeah, well, it, nothing to do with the result of the film. It, it let us know that rich people are bad. <laughs> you know, I let, never would have guessed that, that Cecil. Let's without, get that without out that. there again. Don't don't rescue the enslaved children. Let all of the animals go. Is what it told me. <laughs> oh, oh, and by the way, side note to that, I love how she's like, they're the real winners, and it's like you do know they caught them the first time. They'll just go out and catch them again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're just gonna go at like you. You set the whole thing back maybe five minutes. They're, yeah. they're just, yeah, they're gonna go out there and just, you know, coop them all back up. And I mean, you, you cost them some money by trashing the casino, but in the grand scheme of things, in a week from now, your, your little stunt is going to be long forgotten. Like. <laughs> 
and, and none of it would have happened if you would have just parked where you were supposed to. Well, I'm going to I'm going to hose you over and say Ed Wood because uh, right, <laughs> because uh, Ed Wood is amazing. Yes, Ed it is. Wood is I mean, Johnny Depp is just incredible as the, the lead character. Now, the thing is, I've seen archival footage of uh, the actual Ed Wood, and he's not quite as flamboyant as that. But I mean, in my mind, it's like almost like he's kind of become Johnny Depp in my head. In an actuality, Kathleen Wood might agree with you. She showed up on the set of the movie the day they were shooting the scene where he was, you know, wearing the Angora and directing, which actually never happened on that movie. That was actually something that happened on Glenn and Glenda because he was starring and directing, but whatever, because the movie's not accurate. They were afraid that that being her first sight of Johnny Depp as her husband would would dissuade her, and she goes, that's my Eddie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Martin Landau absolutely deserved the Oscar for Bela Lugosi. He was phenomenal. It was funny. It was, I mean, it was not accurate. I mean, there were elements of accuracy in there, but it was very, it was a very loose retelling. It was like, there was no premiere of Plan 9 from Outer Space. You know, they, there was uh like he a lot of... He never met Orson Welles. He never met Orson Welles. You know, there was a lot of... But the thing, regardless, it doesn't matter. It's a phenomenal movie. One of the last great Tim Burton movies before he just decided to start doing remakes and, you know, pretty much gave up, gave up on the industry and started doing mm. Uh, you know, whatever the hell he wanted to do, um, well, whatever was making money as opposed to his passion projects. Like, you can tell, like, the old movies, how much passion he had, you know. Well, the yeah, if, if you look at, you look at Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood movies like that, you can really see the, the ideas that were turning in his head. It wasn't just like a Hollywood machine. Yeah. And now, like, his later films, it's almost like, oh, well, it's, it's wacky and quirky and that's Tim Burton's style from now on. Ugh. And, it just stands out and it sucks. It's very expensive and um uninteresting. But mm. but Ed Wood, the fact that he stuck to his guns, did it in black and white, did a fairly decent sized budget film about a director who the majority of the people that were seeing the film had never even heard of. And a Disney film no less. A Disney yeah. film no less. And celebrating which a movie which was at the time considered the worst film ever made. <laughs> uh it uh it it just it was a lot of balls that he just does not have now and and in the end it ended up making an incredible film uh just uh, everything about it is just perfect i it's a movie that i will never get tired of everybody in it all the actors all the actresses um the effects the i mean having george the animal steal as George oh Johnson, god yeah oh, that was perfect casting. <laughs> i was gonna bring that up because not only not only um landau as bella lugosi you get so lost in that role but george the animal steal like you just start believing that that's just Tor Johnson. You know, and well, a man of his stature would have a hard time walking through the door. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it's just, it's just great. It's so good, and it shows perhaps a little bit of. Tim Burton's, like, I think he may have inserted a little bit of his own troubles with studios in there with, with Ed Wood being so passionate about filmmaking and running into, uh, you know, the stupidity of producers and everything. And they kind of, uh, inserted that in with the, some of the lines of, that were actually in the real Plan 9 from Outer Space, you know, that he is stupid, stupid mind, stupid, 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 you know, <laughs> and so I think that, um, that's probably why it comes out even more passionately is because it's something that's like, uh, he had a, a vested interest in this he had a you know he's gone through you know some of the stuff that he was making the character go through just a phenomenal film i uh, i love it 
Well, as as I stated, um, it was I was going to talk about it, but decided to talk about Boogie Nights. So obviously, it's one that really resonates very closely with me as well. It is very much almost like a fairy tale version of the events that really happened, but there's something just so magical about that movie, and it really it draws you in like immediately. And the, the black and white in particular, just the overall aesthetic of that film, it's it's just it's perfect. It's by far one of um I. I could even say bordering on Tim Burton's best movie. Um, I mean, for me, it's probably Batman, but I would say Ed Wood might be my second favorite. The the only downside it has is Jeffrey Jones is hard to watch after knowing he likes to f*** children. That uh, is, yeah, he, even he, though he, 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 he was now wrecked for so that many role. movies for me. Well, but it's 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 such a weird thing because it's not the movie's fault, and and it's like you know did. Did anyone know at that point? I mean, if someone, if they were aware of it at that point and he still put him in the movie, but I think that, you know, nobody was really aware of it at that point. And yeah, nobody found out uh, until like quite later on. Yeah, wait, like late nineties, I believe. Still, it makes it harder mm. to watch now. It does make it harder I know, to watch. It's but like, he's, it's like watching a Kevin Spacey movie. It's like, eh, guy's a creep, but eh, the movie's the movie. Yeah. And the other thing too is he's, he's really only in it, you know, as Criswell for like a little bit. I think the movie Still. with him that's harder to watch is Ferris Bueller because he's chasing after a little boy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I think most of it's been said. Uh, let me just say right off the bat before I offer something. I love Ed Wood. It's a wonderful movie and it's fun. It's uh, the way it's filmed. It, it had to be black and white. Uh, it, it, it has a perfect cast. It's a film. I love, I can watch it over and over again. I never grow tired of it. But we brought up the conceptual negative of it. And I do have one small pet peeve, and it's not at the movie. But it's at a perception the movie has created since it came into being. Because as, as stated, many people didn't know who Ed Wood was. Bad movie fans knew because of Plan 9. But that movie brought Ed Wood into the conscious mind. Bothers me a little bit that people look at it, or any of these type of films, as a biography piece. And it's not. No, it's and maybe thirty percent it, it, actually accurate. Oh no, yeah, Ed, it, Ed Wood was like a re, like it, a struggling drug addict, alcoholic. They, they didn't really cover his weird like monster porn orgy movies. Yeah, yeah. It, it it also I think what bothers me a little bit is that you know it elevates Ed Wood to the dreamer, you know, to the eccentric dreamer, which ties into what you said. I think Tim Burton read a little bit into it for his own life. At the same time, cast Bella Lugosi in a very kind of negative image as this methadone addict at the end of his career. If you look at Bella's life, he was a fascinating man. Even before he came to this country, which in itself is a story, he was a renowned actor back in his own home country. I think it was Hungary. I think he was Hungarian. Yes. And yep. he, he was a renowned actor who had played in Shakespearean plays, even played Jesus in a, uh, a passion play. And when he came to America, it was during that time when there was that whole people with that ethnocentricity, you know, of a, a particular voice could only be cast in particular movies, generally as villains. Yes. And this man still 
rose to the top of the heap in that that arena. And the only reason he was even a methadone addict was because he suffered horrific back pain, which I believe he got hurt on the set of a movie, actually. Mm. But I don't know that for sure. But it doesn't matter. He had horrible back pain. And so it wasn't like he was a drug addict in your classic sense of this guy on the street getting fixes. That's what doctors prescribed for back pain. Yeah, that's exactly what they prescribed. And he got addicted to it. And it's interesting to note that he was the first actor to publicly to the Betty Ford Clinic. He was a brave guy. He wasn't afraid of things like we know today. And, you know, another thing that uh, some of his family have said, the movie portrays him as being very vulgar, you know, you know, uh, calling Bella Lugosi a cocksucker and stuff like that. You know? Boris Karloff. Um, uh, Boris Karloff. Boris, Boris Karloff can suck my dick. Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and the thing is, like his whole family said, that's not the way he was. He was very old world gentleman. And I've always said that I believe that there's the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. And what it probably was is that they're right. He probably was old world, old school. That's the way those guys were. But my bet is being that he's on crappy movies where there was no place to sit when you were wet, you know, to warm up. They were probably cold. They were probably miserable. That would bring out the dark side in anybody. You know yeah. what I mean? And my bet is is that these stories we hear about him came from those bad moments, which, which would push any normal person to the edge. But unfortunately now, according to the movie, he was a foul-mouthed, drug-addled loser. And that's one of the things that bothers me a little bit. But if you take it as fun and comedy, it's a great movie. Just please, please, please don't look at it as reality. I only I really take it as, as it representing that part in his life, not not his entire career. Right, but if you listen mm-hmm. to people talk about him now, that's how they talk about him, as yeah. if they know. And it's like, you didn't even do 10 seconds of research, did you? It's the same way they talk <laughs> well, about Ed Wood, the person now, too. But like Cecil said, they think this is a biopic rather than a loose adaptation. Mm-hmm. Well, even biopics, a lot of times they take liberties just to like, Oh, either yeah. tr- either truncate history or to like condense things down to make it into a two-hour picture. My pick is going to be a movie I like, but everyone else on the planet hates, and that is Burn Hollywood Burn and Alan Smithy. Film. Oh, you I had like to do movie. it. I I think it is one of the most biting, brutal satires of the Hollywood system I've ever seen. I don't understand why everyone hates it so much. I think it's because it's so mean spirited, but at the same time. Lots of producers and directors have come out and said it's actually a lot more accurate than people would like to believe it is. Kind of like mm. Wizard of Speed and Time, although that's in a more fun way. People don't want to believe it's as brutally accurate as Burn Hollywood Burn paints the Hollywood system. I, I love the movie. Everyone else hates it. I don't have a problem with it. Um, I think it's fine. I mean, I agree with your, your points. I think, uh, I think in general, there is kind of this weird, uh, I, I think that the curtain has come down recently in the past couple months where people are starting to actually not even months, I'd say past couple of years where people are seeing that Hollywood is really just filled with a lot of shit bags. And, um, there are like, it's perfectly okay. There are a lot of people that are incredibly talented shit bags, but it all comes down to the level of, uh, of, of that. Like if you are a jerk to work with, but you're very talented, there's a difference between being a jerk and being someone who will force uh, women 
women to uh, watch you take a shower, you know, if they want to part in a film, for example. So I think with uh, with Burn Hollywood Burn, I think if people were to kind of revisit it now, they may look at it with uh, a, like a little bit of a more kinder edge because they're like, oh, well, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of nonsense that goes on that previously people weren't really aware of. Oh, I really like it. It's, it's definitely mean, mean spirited, but I think it does it in, in a really good way. And it, it's a movie that sort of, that brings you something that doesn't normally happen, which is Sylvester Stallone being funny, like genuinely funny. Mm-hmm. Whenever he tries to do comedy, anytime I've seen like stop or my mom will shoot or what was it like spy kids 3d or whatever, he's absolutely cringy. It's like stick to the action and the drama stuff. But in this movie, he's hysterical like i don't know what he's channeling or if he's just being himself or what but it's it's great whereas along with everybody else jackie chan and, and Whoopi goldberg and uh who else is in it uh richard richard jenny i think is in it as and like harvey a, as like a producer. is the private detective yeah yeah which oh no that's not awkward now yeah <laughs> Look, I won't, we'll save some time with me. Uh, I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's sharp. And I'll leave it at that. I think maybe it's time I did go back and rewatch it though. I haven't seen it since it first hit video. So to be fair, maybe I do need a rewatch, but I could tell you that I couldn't wait for the movie to be over and I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's fair. But some other ones we'll have to breeze through some of these. There are some other great ones out there. Like, uh, what just happened is a great film about making films. That one's actually more accurate. But not because it's based on a book by an actual Hollywood agent. But due to rights issues, the whole thing with Bruce Willis refusing to shave and being fat. In reality, that was Alec Baldwin, not Bruce Willis. It's full of those kinds of inaccuracies, if that makes Mm. sense, where they had to change names and titles of films to other real names and titles of films that they could get. It's both an accurate movie and a complete fiction movie. Does that make sense? I thought Bruce Willis was very funny in that one. I'd like to bring up Living in Oblivion, because when Living in Oblivion came out, this movie with Steve Buscemi, it was at a time in my life where I was really like in love with the idea of independent cinema. It was a time in my life where I think a lot of us wannabes pie in the sky and, and we're going to defy Hollywood. You know what I mean? We're going to reinvent it. And uh, I think Living in Oblivion really captures that time period when uh, it probably captures a lot of time periods. I obviously can't speak for every decade, but uh, I'm sure filmmakers haven't changed that much throughout the decades and and their dreams and their desires. And this film really kind of shows what it's like to work on an independent feature. I've only worked on a few myself, but I could tell you there's so much in that movie that pretty much dead on hits what it's like, you know, how you can be doing the most simple basic shock shot and the dolly creaks or someone's watch starts beeping or there's noises outside and you you get to that point of like just pure frustration where you want to explode. It represents that thought process so well and it reminds me of that time period like just post Sundance. It reminds me of that time period almost encapsulated. But besides that, it's also just genuinely has several of the funniest moments I've seen in that type of movie. Peter Dinklage, I don't know if this is the film he premiered in, but it's one of his earliest roles. Oh, yeah, 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 it is. Yeah, and he plays uh, a character who is a dwarf, but in a dream sequence that the character is filming, that Steve Buscemi's (laughs) character is filming, and he has one of the funniest freaking speeches. You know what? I'm not going to do it. Look, Tito, it's not that big of a deal. It's a dream. Strange things happen in a dream. All I want you to do is laugh. Why is that such a problem for you? 
Why does it have to be a dwarf? What? Why does my character have to be a dwarf? It doesn't have to be a dwarf. <laughs> then why is he? Is that the only way you can make this a dream? Put a dwarf in it? No, Tito. I... Have you ever had a dream with a dwarf in it? Do you know anyone who's had a dream with a dwarf in it? No! I don't even have dreams with dwarves in them. The only place I've seen dwarves in dreams is in stupid movies like this. Oh, make it weird. Put a dwarf in it. Everyone will go, whoa, whoa, whoa. There, it must be a fucking dream. There's a fucking dwarf in it. Well, I'm sick of it. You can take this dream sequence and shove it up your ass. It's just at the end of the day, I rewatched it for this. It's it's not quite the way I remembered it is any film, really. But it does still encapsulate that time period. And that's what I was thinking while I watched it. I was like, wow, I knew guys like this. The guy that wore the beret, you know, operating <laughs> the camera, talking of their dreams and calling people in Hollywood hostess Twinkies. You know, <laughs> they're, oh, they're just hostess Twinkies. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's what it was like. That's literally what it was like. So I pick Living in Oblivion for that reason. I haven't seen it in a while, but as soon as you started talking about it, I remember – Steve Buscemi, I remember all the other actors. I remember the weird Peter Dinklage scene. It's almost nonlinear, but not. Like this the story does sort of continue, but in in that weird way from different different perspectives of different characters. Like I really like that about it. Yeah, it was a movie that uh it came out, I mean, at like you said, the right time because that was back when you had, you know, Tarantino had just had Reservoir Dogs come out. Uh Kevin Smith was you know had clerks. It was like all of the It was uh, a new age of indie cinema. It was a new age of indie cinema and it was kind of showing, hey, here are some really amazing filmmakers that have made these really incredible films outside of the Hollywood system. Mm -hmm. And it was giving a voice to people who, you know, we would have not seen otherwise. That's and right. a lot of them have really gone on to become, like, you know, major filmmakers. And uh, it was just so seeing something like that. Uh, there was another one. I'm totally blanking on the name. What was the one about the two brothers that were making the film, but like they were, it was just a complete failure. Are, are um, you talking about the two idiots in Hollywood where they're trying to make Pac-Man the movie for the studio, but they're completely clueless and their cluelessness is what makes them attractive to the studio? No. American um, movie? American movie. I don't know if they're brothers, but they're, they're like, not I, don't, brothers. I, don't, I don't think they're brothers in that. No, and and, and that's brothers. a documentary. I want to leave documentaries totally off this. But it's about oh, making a movie, though. They're making COVID. Right. But, but right. we could name <laughs> hundreds of documentaries, dude. No, no documentaries. All right. Oh, it's, it absolutely counts. They even but show I mean, the movie at the end. But I mean, I kind of was was tying that into like, uh, you know, another. Uh, I mean, yeah. All right, whatever. Um, okay, we're gonna leave documentaries out of this. But still, um, still a really good movie, though. It still is a really good movie. I remember them being brothers, but I guess you know it's been a while since I've seen it. But Living in Oblivion is terrific. Steve Buscemi is outstanding in it, and uh, I think it was. Uh, it's a movie that uh, I I don't know. If it was to come out today, it probably would get like major theater release. But like now, back then, God, it got released in like all the art house theaters and went. I saw it on IFC in their early days. That's where I saw it. Oh, it was hard wow, to find. Yeah. It, it really was. was. I I saw it on uh, on VHS. Let's talk about some of the lesser known ones just real quick, like Larry Cohen's special effects. It is about making movies, although it's more of a, it's kind of a psychological slasher film at the same time. No, but it's, it's been on my watch list for a while because I, I'm trying to see as many Larry Cohen films as possible, but that one looks really good. 
I love Larry Cohen. It's not one of my favorites. Um, I, I don't. Oh, he is kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, I, I don't know if I really say it's about making movies. It's more about a guy whose obsession leads him to do some pretty horrible things because he wants to continue making movies. So in that respect, sure. Which is sort of why I left Fade to Black off my list. Otherwise, that would have been my top pick. Because that isn't really... That one isn't really about about making movies. It's a guy, like, dressed up as movie characters. Yeah. Well, he's obsessed with movies. Yeah, so that's why I left Fade to Black off mine. But then there's stuff like uh, FX. FX is kind of about making movies, although it's a weird CIA assassination tale, too. How about 8mm with uh, Nick Cage? Ooh. About snuff films? That's not about making movies. That's about finding out who made the movie. But it's kind of, um, it shows a bit of the process of what what the process might be for snuff films that may or may not exist. It shows the, the underbelly. Yeah. Uh, well, th- then there's always the lonely lady. With that piece of lady. crap, that piece of crap with Pia Sidora where, where Ray Liotta rapes her with a hose. What I don't remember. It's about Hollywood. She's a Hollywood screenwriter in the movie. One that I don't hear a lot of people talking about, and I thought it was great. I had just watched it for the first time actually recently. And it was, uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Oh, wow. Betty Davis. That one's kind of about making movies. It's about the film industry. It's about like a, a failed actress and her resentment for her sister who did better. And it almost, um, I almost believe that this is where Stephen King got the idea for misery. I could see that a little bit. Yeah. yeah Cause it's yeah. She's like keeping her hostage and people keep showing up and she's like hiding that, that her sister's tied up in the bed or whatever. It, I, I'd say that one counts as like a, a movie about movies also turns into a thriller kind of thing. And not a lot of people talk about it. And I don't know why I think it's fucking phenomenal. Well, all right. Then we've also got hijacking Hollywood. The general plot is a low level, just like a PA, can't find anyone to make his independent art film for him. And he's working for a big studio who are making Moby Dick 2, which is the most expensive movie of all time. And it's an action film. And he, and he has to deliver the film cans from Hawaii to the studio. So he holds it hostage until oh, he can get the God. money for his independent film. I it's, haven't it's, seen this, this film, but that does sound funny. And it reminds me of one of my my favorite bits when they do kind of parody like the production of movies like in in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back with uh, Goodwill Hunting 2 Hunting Season or even <laughs> so, even Moon something that's Raper. not even something like scary movie that's not inherently entirely funny but there's that scene where they're in the theater and it shows a trailer for Amistad 2 <laughs> <laughs> It, well, in Hijacking Hollywood, Mark Metcalf is the sleazy studio executive. So, you know, what do you want to do with your life? <laughs> or, okay, I'm going to go a little bit weird here with these with these next two. Howling 3, she is an actress on a bad werewolf movie in Actually, the movie. Yeah. So Howling 3 counts, and one of the most brilliant ones, Shadow of the Vampire. It's oh, God, absolutely yeah. about making movies. That is a yeah. brilliant film, too. Maybe about- possibly Willem Dafoe's finest performance. He is really good in that. How about Barton Fink? Barton Fink. <laughs> I figured Fred was going to be the one to go Barton Fink. But. <laughs> well, it, here's the, I, I, I think we're tap dancing around this a little bit, and that this is where it always gets a little confusing. I, I don't think Barton Fink's about making a movie. In fact, there's no movie being made throughout the film. So mm. it, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's about a man hired to write a movie and it's obviously a character study of Barton. So yeah. And then it's, it's his like, movie, kind of though. going, going insane. 
Have well, any okay. of you ever seen a movie, and I hope you haven't, called The Pickle? Oh, oh no. Gosh. I did. Oh, no. I did. Is that the one with <laughs> Danny Aiello? Wait a minute. Yes. Wait yes. a minute. <laughs> Where Danny Aiello is a formerly top-notch director and has three disastrous movies in a row, facing dismal dismissal Fuck. from the top peers of Hollywood. You know, I'm trying you to know get it. Basically, trying to he's out. trying to make a movie about a movie about a giant pickle from outer space. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> Do you realize that I I knew that I saw this movie on like Super Channel when I was like seven or eight years old, and I thought it was the weirdest fucking thing. And stupid and dumb and I hated it and I never saw it since. But it, it, the memory was always in the back of my mind. Like, <laughs> but I couldn't remember what it was called. But I, I knew it couldn't just be the pickle. And you I didn't know I never... what movie it was, but you knew it was a dilly. Oh hey. God! The pickle is supposedly social satire where a bunch of super white kids from Kansas take vegetables in outer space via a cucumber and land on an Earth-like planet where everyone lives on only beef and dies at age forty-nine. I, I honestly thought this was like a Mandela effect. <laughs> thing that, that I imagine seeing <laughs> a movie about a giant pickle. So you see like them talking, the whole movie they're talking about this movie and they're making the movie and then all of a sudden you're like alright and then they're watching this giant pickle in outer space and I'm like this is horrible. It stinks. I would it's rather, bad. I would even, rather even... watch the actual movie The Pickle than, than The Pickle which is about the making of The Pickle. Yeah, even it's, seven year old me thought this was trash. <laughs> Well, <laughs> okay. Have any of you seen? No, Troma didn't make it. They only released it. But have any of you seen Screenplay? No, no. I don't think I have. It Screenplay? might be the most artist. Yes, yeah, Screenplay. It's from the '80s. It might be one of the most artistic movies to ever have a Troma logo at the front of it. Huh. It's you know a guy comes to Hollywood. The whole movie's shot in black and white. It's shot on 16 millimeter, but as if it were kind of a universal film mixed with mm. a silent film. He's trying to write a horror movie, and then the horror characters keep breaking out of the script to attack him as like vampires. And it's amazing. I literally have the poster hanging on my wall right now. It is. Is it like from said, uh, from '86? Yes. Okay. It is a fantastic film. It's like I said, it's it's very much an art film. So just a casual viewer is not going to appreciate this. Someone mm. who is a film fan is going to look at this and go, "Trauma released this? What the hell?" <laughs> There's the weird one. I just showed Fred the trailer for this last night. Have any of is anyone besides me seen the movie CQ from 2000? No, I don't think so. No. Ramon Coppola, it's it's about Jeremy Davis from Lost in the 1960s being the editor on a bad, goofy, like, Barbarella-esque sci-fi movie, and then Gerard Depardieu is the director who gets fired, and then Jeremy Davis has to finish the movie, but he is already dating one of the makeup ladies, and then he starts having an affair with the main lady, and it's all about, like, this weird 60s sci-fi aesthetic. It's It's really good, and nobody's seen this film. We need to talk about the, the two big, the two big black films about making films, Hollywood Shuffle versus Bamboozled. Now, everybody knows I hate Spike Lee. Bamboozled did nothing to abate that hate. I think Hollywood Shuffle is brilliant. I think Bamboozled is an angry child going, look at me, look at me, whereas Hollywood Shuffle actually has subtlety and a point to it. Did I ever 
saw Bamboozled. I, I saw the trailer, and I must confess, it just didn't grab me. And the funny thing is, is at that time, I, I did like Spike Lee. I had seen most of his movies. But I, was that after Girl Number 6? Because I remember Girl Number 6 was my beginning of delusion, like I disillusionment with Spike. But I, I skipped Bamboozled. But I love, love, love Hollywood Shuffle. That's a movie among close friends we we quote endlessly black acting school uh, <laughs> to the whole Tommy they killed my brother and he was my only brother I loved it the dude and we just quote this movie endlessly it is funny it's sharp it's dead on point and again it shows the love of wanting to make movies and it does it from the perspective of a man who finds it difficult to work in the industry because he's typecast as well as you can tell by the voice I just did he's typecast as the you know the street bro and that's not who he is at all and he wants to see characters and films that represent him and his family and it's a it's it's a sweet film it's it's not a mean-spirited film it's very funny it's very endearing and it has endlessly quotable lines whereas bamboozled is just trying to be black network and i i I don't think i'm exaggerating because remember there's a whole i'm as mad as hell and not going to take it anymore speech in bamboozled but rewritten a little bit for black audiences i i just think bamboozled comes across as so angry and it's less frustrated and more how dare you ignore my brilliance and that's why I think Hollywood Shuffle is just, it's better all around. Have not seen either, but I just Googled uh, Bamboozled and that looks like shit. Hollywood Shuffle looks really good though. Peter, you gotta see that one, you'll like it. It looks really fun. I'm reading up the synopsis and stuff. Um, Bamboozled, I'm seeing what looks like black dudes in blackface? Yeah. The that, hell is that, that? That's the joke. We're gonna get double blackface. Wow. Hollywood Shuffle, I haven't seen in a long time, but talking about it makes me want to watch it again. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I remember remembering things. I'm like, oh God, I need to see that again. That was terrific. The, the, yeah. Bamboozled. It just, like, honestly, I've seen a lot of Spike Lee and I know it's, it's blasphemy, but the majority of it sucks. The only, I, I really enjoyed Summer of Sam. Yeah. Every other film I've seen, I'm like, eh, like is, is, is this a big deal? Be, I mean, is it, it he, he's, you know, uh, because he's making, you know, the films for the black audience. And if so, like, why is he given so much? Uh, it, why isn't he given shit when Tyler Perry is given so much? Shit? I understand his stuff is is more comedic and aimed at more kind of a family audience. But I don't know. It's like his stuff. It always seems like, oh, it's so deep and insightful. And I'm like, no. <laughs> It's, it just, it, it just seems like it's supposed to be, but it's really not. Like, there are a lot of, there are much better black directors out there, but he just for some reason, get, like his remake of The Sweet Blood of Jesus, you know, or, or of, uh, Ganja and Hess, he made this, or Old Boy, oh god, Old Boy, oh his remake sucks. Oh my god, that sucks. was disgraceful. But he remade, uh, Ganja and Hess, which was, was a, a fantastic film, a, a revolutionary film, uh, from a black director, and he made The Sweet Blood of Jesus, and it blew! I mean, it, it just showed that he didn't even understand the whole point of the film that he was remaking. If we're talking black directors, I, I know, I think it's his first film, but Boots Riley, sorry to bother you, is one of the most brilliant films of the year, hands hmm. down. I still need uh, I to see that. I absolutely loved, I, I absolutely loved, sorry to bother you, and Boots Riley was fantastic in it. But we need to swing this back. Fred and I need to have a fight over a movie. Something oh, he and I have been fighting about in person 
for the last week. I love Hollywood Boulevard. So do okay. I. They made a sequel, Hollywood Boulevard 2, which is basically the same movie, but with Ginger Lynn and Robert Patrick as the put-upon cameraman, who I think actually almost steals some of his scenes. You can see the Robert Patrick's charisma in this. Fred does not like Hollywood Boulevard 2. I do. Before Fred and I fight, have either of you seen both movies? Haven't seen either of them. No. Okay. <laughs> I've not seen both. Joe Bob Briggs appears as himself in part two. For mm. 15 seconds. Still? Is she naked in there? Why don't you like Hollywood Boulevard 2 when it's basically the same movie as the first film? <laughs> I think that might well, be why he doesn't like it. it let, let's set a little groundwork for this because, real quick, the first film is lots of fun. It's nothing necessarily brilliant. It was a contest with Joe Dante, Alan Arkish, and, uh, or was it Jonathan Kaplan? Anyway, Joe no, Dante it, it and one other. It was Alan Arkish. It was Alan Arkish, okay. With a contest between them two and Roger Corman to make a movie faster than Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> and they basically cobbled together scenes from many other Roger Corman movies and then built a film around those scenes. Think Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid or What's Up Tiger Lily, you know, except there's an actual movie in there. It's a lot of fun. It's very dumb. You've got people like Paul Bartell and Mary Wernoff is in it, plus lots Dick of other. Miller. Oh, Dick Miller's wonderful in it. And there's lots of people you will just recognize. You've seen them in a million things. And it's just fun. That's all I'll say. It's just a good time, and you enjoy watching these people perform. Even the B-list actors in it are actually entertaining. Cut to Hollywood Boulevard 2, which, as Josh pointed out, is the first film remade. Only without the wit, without the talent, without the integrity... It's not funny, not even slightly funny. Agree. Everything I that's a lot. Let me give you a good example. Mary Warnoff, I'm going to give a spoiler here, it won't matter, is the villain in the first movie. And throughout it, she's the bitchy aging actress, okay? Hence why she doesn't like the younger, prettier actresses. Mary Warnoff does a great job. In the second film, they have a character, by the way, named Mary. <laughs> Get it? Because Mary Warnoff played her in the first film. She is supposedly the same type of character. She is the aging, bitchy actress who hates the younger, prettier actresses. Only, she's the same age as all the other actresses, just as pretty, and barely featured in the film. It is horrible. It's bad on every conceivable level. When people use the word garbage movie too often, in my opinion, and Cecil knows this too. We've talked about it ad nauseum ourselves. Oh, yeah. They, they say that too often. To me, a garbage movie is a movie that fails at every level. It's a movie, if you want to be a comedy and you're not funny, you failed. If the acting's bad, you failed. If the directing's bad, you failed. If the acting or editing's bad, you failed. That's Hollywood Boulevard 2. This movie sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry. I enjoyed it. I thought Ginger Lynn gave, gave, I mean, this was her first main, you know, non-porn movie that she did. I thought she gave kind of a sweetness to her character, which is kind of ironic considering what her former, you know, employment was. I enjoyed it. I mean, it's not as good as the first film. I'm not going to try and make that claim, but I enjoyed it. Is that it? Is that all you got? Ginger Lynn keeps her clothes on? That'll get them to see it. Actually, she doesn't, though. She does have a nude scene in it, though. I know, but if that's what it, the way you sounded, though. She does. She has, like, a naive sweetness to her character. You're not and selling then, me on this. God. No kidding. That's terrible. And then you've got, like, you know, and then Hollywood Boulevard 
was remade kind of again as Bad Girls from Mars. Exact same plot, but totally different cast. This one, this time, it wasn't Roger Corman, though. But Bad Girls from Mars is basically Hollywood Boulevard again. Before we end tonight, I want to talk about what what might be, now, by greatest, since the movie was never made, we don't know that, but what sounds like one of the greatest unmade movies about movies ever. And that would be the third Django film. The third real mm. Django film. Because remember, they had Django and then Franco Nero... It had like four different titles, but was Django again in 1987. In the, in the 1990s, now remember, this is coming from the Old West times, so the plot was Django had found his way to America, and it's now the silent era of westerns and Roman pictures and things like that, and Django was a stuntman in old Hollywood when some of his debts from the Old West catch up with him in Hollywood. And I'm going, that sounds like it was an amazing movie. How could that have not gotten made? They should still make that. Franco Nero's too old now. F*** that. Did you see well, even Django Unchained looks great? It's It simply comes down to there are a lot of movies that are great that just don't get made for whatever mm-hmm. reason. And, the, uh, and then sometimes they do get made and then they get put on a shelf. Like, look at Trick or Treat. Paramount, or not Paramount. Um, Ed Wood, dude. Ed sat, sat on a shelf. On shelf for two years. Because Disney, the only reason, they didn't know how to market the film. Do we market it as a comedy or or a personal drama or a satire? To spend that much money on Ed Wood and sit on it because we don't know how to make the trailers. Yeah, it's that like... boggles my mind. It's like they can't... It's almost like they have their formula, like I did in my video. You know, they just, they just sit there and they're like, you know, pause for comedy, put in... Every five seconds, and then you know if they don't know how to do that for that kind of film, then they just they they panic and they put it on a shelf. I mean, there's been tons of films. Curious as to how many movies out there that could be future franchises, future huge films that we just don't know about because they're sitting on them. Well, and then we also got to mention there's Hooper. You know, Burt Reynolds again. Oh, and Michael Vincent as stuntmen. Yeah, you know that that's a movie about making movies. And then there's a weird one. It has two different titles. Some people might know it as those Mad Mad Movie Makers. I've got it on VHS as the last porno flick. It's about a bunch of losers telling everyone they're making a religious film so they can get funding while they're actually making a porno film, and the movie itself is rated PG. So it's a movie Mm. about making a porno movie that has no nudity in it. That's (laughs) just something to behold, man. What draws you to movies about movies? Is it like... What you said about Wizard of Speed and Time, where it shows the passion or, you know, sort of our dreams, or is it just, we kind of like to see, even if it's fictionalized, the process? I think it's like anything, you know, tell me a good story, introduce me to characters I don't know, you know, the Old West, outer space, under the water. I mean, you know, a movie's a movie at the end of the day, no matter the topic, you just got to make the best movie you can. Uh, Otherwise, it's Hollywood Boulevard, too. (laughs) Um, I think that we come back to certain films because they do inspire us, at least on a filmmaking level. As I said, with Wizard of Speed and Time, it is a movie I go back to. In fact, I'd mentioned on the show before the Muppet movie which is about that desire to want to make movies to make people happy and to bring joy. And, you know, it's even better when you get to share it with other people to make the movie. So Wizard Speed Time and Muppet Movie both have that kind of special place for me that it reminds me of why I wanted to be a filmmaker, the reasons I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I would say, yeah, it it, it ultimately comes down to, you know, it's interesting to get an inside perspective if that's all you want. But if you want to make movies, these films can show you the perspective of people who've already gone through it. 
Um, as somebody who, uh, wanted to be a filmmaker at some point, uh, still, I mean, I still do. I just don't know if that's ever going to happen, but, uh, it's neat to see, um, films just, uh, going through a lot of the stuff that I know is out there. A lot of the nonsense, a lot of the drama, and, uh, it just, sometimes it makes for a good film. Uh, in the case of Ed Wood, even though, uh, it's not factual, it still makes for an interesting and engaging production. Uh, there are ones out there that just, uh, stink obviously we've talked about a few of them it's it's kind of a way of looking behind the curtain and seeing things uh differently i think what i like about them is they're they're great for when you're sort of in the mood for a documentary sort of in the mood for a biopic and sort of in the mood for a regular movie so a movie about the process of making of making a movie is pretty much perfect for that mood and see i like it just because i'm a film geek i love this stuff you know, I, I love movies. I love the process of making movies. And, you know, all of us are sort of frustrated filmmakers. And like Cecil, you know, I've got a movie I'm writing right now. Whether it'll ever get made, I don't know. What I would really love, if somebody would ever back it, I would love to have a Radio Drum anthology where Fred, Cecil, Peter, and I all direct one segment of a Radio Drum anthology. Come on. Somebody's got to be dumb enough, uh, uh, brave enough to give us the money for this. Why don't <laughs> we just to. do that? We could each just record like a 10 minute thing and then put it all together and throw it up on youtube because that wouldn't I really take that long because i have a higher standard than just making a doug walker movie you gotta put something out though to get the traction going i'd rather not make anything than make crap because well, i because you know this is not a tig with tig production films are a passion for like if you're listening to this show films are probably your passion you should check out some of these movies you should check out especially some of the if, if there's any titles that we talked about tonight or even just mentioned in in passing that you've never seen seek these things out you might not like them like hollywood boulevard 2 fred didn't like it fine you might like it it's you know just watch these movies and also, it's all of your fault as listeners that we got to 400 episodes. So you can you can simmer in that for a while. Mm-hmm. On that note, where can we find Frederick Fritz? You can find me, Josh Hadley, and Pitar making Hollywood Boulevard 3. Oh, boy. <laughs> Actually, nowhere right now because I, I've had some Internet issues and I don't even have a Facebook anymore. So stay tuned. Find me at uh, YouTube. I uh, get bad flicks on YouTube as well as those evil social medias to uh, Twitter, Facebook. And um, I'm also on Twitch. And God, my brain is all over the place tonight. Oh, yeah. And that 1201beyond.com place. Well, where can we find Peter, who doesn't hate social media as much? You can find me, like, begrudgingly using Twitter uh, <laughs> at Zinematica, <laughs> um, just barely keeping the, the strings attached for, for Facebook. Like, that's that's so going to be gone soon at the, the Cinemasochist. YouTube, which, my God, even that one's devolving. Like, YouTube has just become a cesspool with the Paul brothers and all that crap. You can find me uploading my stuff still on uh, YouTube, the Cinemasochist. Not as begrudgingly because a lot of you that, that watch my stuff are very groovy, groovy folks and I try to comment back to you as often as I can. 1201beyond.com where we got a bunch of other, other shows apart from this one that are great that you should check out. Lots of, lots of cool merch that you should get, uh, to help us out so we can get some better equipment. Obviously buy some of my shirts. They're easily the best ones. And on Patreon at Zinematica where you can give me money so I don't have to break my fucking back in a warehouse. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And yes, we have a Patreon as well. 
well. It would be nice if we could get some professional equipment or if I could stop using my 2005 computer to edit all of these and record all of these on. That would be a nice upgrade. How do you even do that? (laughs) Such an old computer. Did they make computers back then? I don't think they did. <laughs> the hard part for it's, him is keeping the hamster alive to power it. <laughs> I'm just I'm envisioning I'm envisioning the Whopper from uh, War Games. <laughs> well, you, you know what? You're the kind of guy who would piss on a spark plug if you thought it'd do anything. Josh just is just using the goddamn that, uh, thing. Josh is just using that computer that um, Kurt Russell plays chess with, and the thing. <laughs> Cheating bitch. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> Dumps his drink in it. <laughs> All right. On that note, guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.